0: Hello and welcome to Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez.
1: I'm Jasper Wilde.
0: And we are here today talking to Tamika Lawrence of Genuine Origin. Hi. Uh, so we're gonna jump right into the conversation. But first before we do that, so our coffee community, we wanna thank you. Um I bet you I only my mom has listened, probably. So <laughs> she's excited for everything. When she she came to my barista competition last year and she was so like, Wow, this is a real thing you do. It's like, yeah, mom, <laughs> it took you six years. It's fine. Uh-huh. But yeah, she's really excited. Oh, same. Yeah, same. Uh, it was it was really exciting for her to hear. But now that She's kind of seen what's happened and she's engaged with it. She's like, oh, wow, you guys do all this cool stuff for coffee. And I'm like, yeah, um, but thanks, mom. She's now she's like, why'd you put me on blast? Um, I'm going to get a text <laughs> message about it like right now. Um, but yeah, so we have Tamika here. Uh, we have a couple of things we want to talk about with her. But before we kind of get into kind of like the nitty gritty of it, we want you to talk about um, a little bit about your background, how you got into coffee, what? Uh, where you're based? What do you care about? Do you have Do you have any likes, dislikes? What's your sign? I want to know your sign later.
2: <laughs> I will um, be sure to put that up. You can find all that stuff on my Tinder profile. JK. Ow, ow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, my name is, <laughs> is. That how it works? Uh, I don't have to know. <laughs> I'm based. Oh, God, (laughs) Tinder. I'm based in New York City, and I've been in coffee for um, a little over six years now. So right now, I'm with the Genuine Origin Project. I should say now that all of my many uh, views are my own. Um, But I'm with the Genuine Origin Project, which is um, a new project from an older importing uh, company called Bull Cafe, where the goal is to really you know, make clear to people along the supply chain and more specifically on our end, what's really going on at Origin? What are producers' lives really like? Are we making the impact um, that we want to? The answer is not always yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so our project is attempting to address that um, and source coffees in a way um, that are more transparent and that really offer support in the gaps Um, because it's not always enough to just pay a few extra cents per pound when you're looking at um, when the issues are structural and that are really holdovers from the fact that coffee uh, was moved through the world through colonialism and for a while, you know, was was um, produced by slaves. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to produce coffee, when producers start to have agency and get money for the work that they're doing, there's still going to be a power imbalance there and some structural imbalances that are holdovers um, from colonialism and some gaps for producers to really be able to change the, like, the course of their life through going specialty coffee. And so we really feel like specialty coffee and I you know, feel like specialty coffee should be for producers what it's been for me and for my, in my career um, and really, all the opportunities that we have here. So that's what I'm doing in New York now. I'm super passionate about it. Um, so cool. But I've worked. <laughs> but I've done it. I've done uh, mostly, you know, I've never done any roasting or production, but I've done pretty much everything else that there is to do in coffee. Uh, I've worked uh, for Counterculture as an account manager, um, an educator, and Stumptown before that as a barista. Um, and helped open up a shop, um, and then, you know, ran a couple of shops before I left. So that's me. What's your sign? <laughs> I am a Virgo. I'm Jasper's a Virgo,
0: I'm- <laughs> <Jessica's> <laughs> I'm also- but she's like a hundred percent a Virgo.
2: <laughs> and I'm like the fakest Virgo you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> I'm like always hearing about how Virgos are really fastidious. I mean, except that I am a I am a perfectionist. Um mm-hmm. But it's very selective, and so it's like I, I am not like as fastidious as Virgos usually are supposed to be. I'm definitely not as organized as Virgos are usually supposed to be. I'm like, when are these things supposed to actually happen for my <laughs> life? Because some of these things would be great,
1: right? <laughs> um, so, okay, you were saying, oh, yeah, you were saying that there are instances where buyers think that they're paying the extra money or they're doing the right thing or really helping everybody out. But in reality, it's not really going to the places it needs to go. Like what's an example of that?
2: Well, it's not that it's not that as long as people are careful about um, the way they buy. And especially if you are, you know, working with an importing trust, it's not producers soon get the money. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not just the money. That's an issue. And Mm -hmm. so it's like when when it's really about like helping people increase production so that the money that they make can sustain them for a year. So it's not just that the the, it's it's about financial um, literacy and education. And it's not a knock on producers for not having it Mm -hmm. because when you used to do a thing for for free and then you get paid to do a thing yeah um, but you still don't have as much agency in how much you receive for it, and that's you know it's more you, we're talking like olden days, so I'm not even talking necessarily about the way people buy coffee now, but there's like a there's a legacy and there's like a traditionalism in a way that coffee gets bought and sold in really any old industry mm-hmm. and so when you're talking about who has access to like agronomic information and who has access to small business support um typically it's not going to be like a smallholder farmer mm-hmm. and so it's like how does that person make their money last year round and how can they feed their family year round and you know continue to invest in the farm in a way that be, that ends up being an investment in the family mm-hmm. and so that is really what it is what it's about it's not that necessarily we the money isn't going where it, where it should go it's just that it's not enough mm-hmm. the money alone isn't gonna isn't gonna make the di- make uh, all the difference for producers got
0: it you guys just did yeah. a project um in honduras where you kind of engaged everyone in the supply chain you had roasters here roasting coffee and then you had i believe one of the producers come here and judge the coffee right can you
2: tell me more about oh that? so it was yeah so we did this competition called roasting go um, and it um, go is we go as what we call our ourselves because we're genuine origin <laughs> so it was, a, it was also like downwards we, the, the prizes were um, trips to all inclusive trips to origin um, and so what we did one thing that genuine origin does that is like just um, to me really exciting is that sh- we definitely source really high quality microlots. Um but we're also committed to buying coffee from entire communities, and so because because most producers don't have a lot of land. When you're not talking about like you know um, producers with more a little bit more privilege, um, it's not going to be enough to help support a community if you could, if you can only buy coffee from one or two producers. And so what we do is we people that are working with Genuine Origin are really working with genuine origin um, producers at source, we will buy coffee from the entire community and then sell that as a lot. That doesn't say anything about the quality. Actually, the quality is really high um, because the we have provide, provided like a lot of agronomic and community support. It um, also means that we can buy all of the coffee and then that makes a difference for an entire community. And so we, instead of highlighting like a micro lot for our roasting competition, we wanted to highlight this really high quality community lot that meant that we were supporting more producers than you can, than you could ever possibly support with um, just micro lots. Uh, And so we had um, our assistant general manager of our uh, mill in Honduras called Molino's. Uh, he came and he had a, played a big role in helping to put together that. Um, and so he came and judged uh, the wrestling competition in St. Louis. It was really awesome. St. Louis is a great, I've been, they have an awesome coffee community. Everyone was incredibly welcoming. Um, there was a ton of really good coffee in town and there, and the, you know, we had also had a TNT that raised money for um, a charity in town. So it was really such a fun event and really representative of like what genuine origin is hoping to do
0: so listening to that made me think a lot about micro lots and how we market those as better or good and i think what you just said really made me question that because it seems like when you buy coffee from one or two producers in a community you're really just isolating those coffees from those producers and kind of leaving everybody else out so i was wondering if you could yeah talk a little bit about that like micro lots are one of these things that we kind of tout as really great in coffee, but like, what does that actually mean for everyone else who gets excluded from that?
2: Yeah. Well, I honestly, as someone who has not yet spent a lot of time at origin, I want to be careful to not speak to things. I'm not, um, that I haven't personally, ex- you know, experienced, right. but I can say that definitively. Micro lots are a small percentage of what producers like produce. Yes. Um, because, and especially when you, the thing is micro lot only denotes a a quantity, not a quality. And so it just means it's, co- it's coming from a smaller place or even it might just mean a small part of a producer's crop.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it is not a, it is not a lie to say that producers can't live on microlots alone. Right, because if all we did was buy, I will say this, and this is something that, um, that we do spend uh sort of a lot of time talking to because if all we did was buy the very best, like a couple bags from like one place, uh, it would never producers could never live off that, mm-hmm. all right. And so, I do often think about the quality standards that we set for themselves and who are they for and what does it mean Mm -hmm. um because it's not that i mean you know i come from uber specialty coffee Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i want those coffees to be around i want people to keep buying them like Mm -hmm. i want them to exist but i also know that we need to find a way to support um producers and there are already people who are who buy the rest of Producers' coffee, and so maybe when we're talking about micro lots, it's good to give them the respect that they deserve. um, But also, like, not try not to um, assign any like negativity to coffees that are specialty, that you know, that meet the specialty standard, that and that taste good. Like, not to ascribe any like negativity to them, because if we really want to be real, what do our customers even know the difference? Like we're purporting that we're purporting that they know the difference. We certainly know the difference. And interestingly enough, as much as I would like to say, as much as I would love to give directive to the, the customer, I actually think the directives are for us Okay. because I don't think, I don't think that the producer, I don't think that the, or excuse me, I don't think that the customer is, um, it's going to be really hard because we don't talk about the relationships that we have with importers. Hmm. And so it's going to be really hard for someone to say which importer did you get this coffee from. And and the, the thing is they could do it, but a barista might not know the answer to that question even yeah. if they know even if they know everything else because again like there was I'm just having entered the world of green coffee just a little over 6 months ago. I'm bowled away at how much I did not know and how much I still do not know. I could work, I mean, the thing about green that is so enticing, frankly, is that I could work in green for 20 years and probably still not know everything that there is to know. And so, but as far as like looking for sustainability and traceability, it's really hard to ask a customer to do that. So I really, what I really want is for people who are um, who are buying coffee to do that. Like when you're hearing that, you know, that good work is being done or that you're working directly with a producer, just try and get as much information as you can from your importers. Like that's the thing that we're here to do. And if someone is not, in, you know, if that's an important part of your business model, but someone doesn't want to share that with you, then maybe that's something for you to think about. Like maybe I should, maybe I need to, you know, be more persistent or maybe I want to buy from, an importer who is who puts more of a premium on that Mm -hmm. because there is it's really hard the because of the way that the supply chain is a little it's a little convoluted and we really don't talk about it and it's part of the reason why genuine origin is named that because we we do want to be real Mm -hmm. we we honestly we're like we want to be real about the things that we're working on the things that are going the way we want them to the things that you know haven't rolled out in certain countries because the laws are different like if you ask us we'll give you as much information as as we can and that's what you should be looking for and and because even though there's a this is not all of this is is not about sure like you know we all want to sell coffee but coffee is uh is a little bit of at an at-risk it's an at-risk crop mm-hmm and and it's at risk to a lot of things, but one of the major risks is that, or one of the major sort of um, dangers is that people aren't wanting to grow specialty. So like production is actually dropping um, like worldwide and has been for a while. And while some of it's due to global warming, a lot of it's just <clears throat> it's due to people not producing coffee anymore. So we should really all want to be sourcing coffee in a way that's good for producers because what's what's good for the producer is good for the crop and what's good for the crop is good for everyone that wants to drink it i really think the directive is more towards us and saying hey what can we do to make sure that we're working with people um that are sourcing coffee in ways that we where we can get information um and we know that there that there's work being done to support producers because it's really hard for customers because of all the marketing involved. Because something that is marketed as direct trade could be really good for a producer. Something that is marketed at fair trade could be good for the producer. It all depends on the quality of coffee that a producer has and the amount of it that they have. And so, like, this is definitely not to demonize any model because some models are really good. Like, sometimes fair trade is is a really good model for a producer. And so it's really hard to say. It really is so nuanced that it's really hard to say well, definitely look for this thing or definitely don't look for this thing. It would be too hard for the customer to get all that information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it's like, that's the thing that we have more access to. So we need to make it, we need to make people aware that that's information that we want. And to me, I view that as like a, an intra-industry you know, imperative. And so I definitely think just in general, everyone having a greater understanding of, really how the supply chain is connected and what's working and us just being more transparent, um, about that is good. is a, is a way to move towards that and like true, um, transparency. And that doesn't always necessarily mean like, this is how much I paid. But like, even just being upfront that like we we all work with importers. That is mm-hmm. a thing that gets done mm-hmm. no matter how direct the relationship was. Mm-hmm. Because even, I didn't, it's a thing that I know about bringing in environmental, um, like bringing in anything agricultural. Like I know in a far, I knew in a faraway place in the corner of my brain that of course, an importer has to do that because mm-hmm. there are risks and there, you know, and that, and also that there are legal, um, implications to bringing something in. Yeah. But did I ever consider that like even someone that has a direct trade relationship is working with an importer? Never. And of mm-hmm. course it must have. And we even will talk about that. Like we t- you know, we talked about the relationships we had with importers when I worked at Counterculture, but I didn't I still don't understand the scope um of the work that um that really importers do do a lot of still. Yeah. Um even if there even if there is a lot of communication
1: I used to think that it was either farmer or importer. Like, there was only two options. (laughs) Which, yes,
2: that's coffee's
1: from, you know, Cafe Imports. This coffee is from Nelson Ramirez. Oh, got it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually what a a beautifully succinct way to put that. Because that's exactly what I thought. I was like, this is from this producer. And then this one we got through this importer. (laughs) well we did get that one through a producer but also we still even if it all an importer does is take responsibility for that coffee and move it Mm -hmm. um that that person that they did still play a role in that um and it's just i think all of that supply chain information is really useful for us to have and it has to be just us just being aware of it has to be the first step of really making sure that what we're doing um it's good for producers and totally like I am so into challenging people's idea of um, quality as far as it relates to sustainability for coffee Mm -hmm. Mm long-term because that good coffee will hopefully always be there um but it will never be the bulk of a producer's crop Mm -hmm. um and so it's like well and, and yeah, yeah, and right. And in some places it might be, you know, on a small on a really small farm it actually might be, right? Mm-hmm. Like they might have mostly really good coffee. Um but it still is uh, I want us to be introspective about who are these who are these like quality standards for? Are they for us?
1: Mm-hmm. Are they for
2: our customers? Are we saying they're for our customers but really they're just for us? Yeah. And then is that is that a good thing? Is that, is that worth it? And then, you know, because frankly, uh, an 84 that's brewed really well is always going to be better than like an 88 that someone doesn't know how to brew properly. Right. Like give me a, give me an 84 (laughs) cup of coffee with a good (sighs) brewing ratio. And that takes longer than three (laughs) minutes and I'm in it. (laughs) I love that.
0: I know. I think that's something I completely didn't understand until I worked for a roastery was that like the reality of growing coffee is that it is an agricultural product. So there are years that you'll get a coffee and you're like, I have a commitment to this person, but this coffee mm-hmm. is not what it was last year. So mm-hmm. what does that mean for me as a roaster? Yeah. Um. And I think yeah. for a long time as a barista, you get kind of caught up in this pursuit of excellence of like, the perfect shot, or like the perfect V60. And you're like, I don't know. Once I took a step back from being behind the bar, it was the first time that I really thought about, like, well, this is the reality of coffee. Coffee's not always perfect, it's not always the bulk of someone's production, too. Mm-hmm. So, really, it's on me to make this as great as possible. It's my job to make that 84 coffee shine really beautifully, as opposed to just right. being able to have like the prettiest tools and have the prettiest coffees, because that's just not the reality of number one, what most farmers can grow, and number two, what you get because you know the environment is changing, and yeah, there are you know bugs who want to eat all of our coffees and make them make them die, and that sucks, so like thinking yeah, thinking about what our pursuit of excellence kind of compromises is really interesting
2: yeah because if you have the technical skill set you can make an 84 taste delicious yeah. and if a roaster knows what to do with it they can i mean they can very easily do that because fr- frankly an 84 coffee is a really good one
1: yeah you exactly. know what i mean
2: so it and so it's really easy to to get caught up in that sort of stuff and again it's not you know I'm not into specialty coffee because I don't like really good things. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's not that I don't understand. (laughs) It's not that I don't understand the pursuit and, you know, and enjoy it from like very often, but it's, it's just about kind of opening up, um, opening up our worldview and also saying like, because I, I feel the same way that you do. Like I had favorite coffees and, you know, one year they would come in a little bit different and I'd be like, Oh man, like, uh," I felt like, this, the twenty twelve crop of this coffee was the best one that I that it's that I've had, mm-hmm. um, but also like producers would co- or um, customers would come and buy that coffee as soon as it showed up on the shelves, mm-hmm. and they always loved it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, mm, is it, who is this about really? Yeah, is it about them? And it and it honestly like as much as we love coffee and as much as it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm the people who are going to steward coffee going forward are the people that always remember it's a business mm-hmm. and like this is a business. Yeah. And so if the people we are serving will buy the things that we have, then we're doing it right.
1: Yeah.
2: And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like a crazy 88 point coffee for them to buy it. That's mm-hmm. an us thing. Yep. And everyone certainly has the right to to run their business however they want when we're looking about like stewarding coffee's future, we do need to be pragmatic. Absolutely.
0: Thinking about customers is, is really interesting in a lot of different aspects about how do you craft not only meaningful ways for them to digest information. Cause even with all of this, all I can think about is like, Oh my God, how do I, how do I talk about this with customers? Like there's so much, <laughs> much there, but something that I, I, I'm also concerned about is just how do we get even people in the door? Like, I mean, there's no secret that coffee shops end up being in neighborhoods where they kind of are the first people who end up gentrifying a neighborhood. And the idea of a gentrification is already kind of like hard to define. It's broad. Yeah, it's broad. It doesn't always necessarily fall on the burden of, of coffee shops, but it often ends up being that business owners open up places in neighborhoods that they either didn't grow up in or they don't belong to the community there. Um, and that's right. not to say it's always true. So uh, right. I, 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 wonder like, what are things that you think you notice that maybe like other people don't notice when you walk into a specialty place?
2: I definitely notice like, I, I mean, if, if someone is who's listening to this podcast works in specialty coffee, I am by no means dropping a truth bomb they've never heard before right. by saying that coffee is overwhelmingly white.
0: Wait, 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 wait. So like, I've never heard that before. What? Whoa,
1: What? <laughs> I mean, no. You're South <laughs> We're doing great. I'm a sensitive genius. I have one black customer. I'm doing okay.
2: <laughs> I'm killing it. Right.
0: <laughs> that was no, the um,
1: entire PS.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't play this out of
2: context.
1: You're right. Um, but no,
0: you're right. right. That's like not a truth bomb at all. Like, that's true. We know Mm -hmm. that. But anyway, so you were saying.
2: Yeah. So I definitely noticed I certainly noticed that coffee is um, is overwhelmingly white. Um, And there will often be an assumption of what I have an appreciation for or the capacity to understand on the side of a barista who doesn't know me. Right. And like, I'm really not into going into coffee places and saying that I work in coffee. Because I shouldn't have to do that to get uh, the customer experience that I feel like just any customer deserves. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely experienced that because coffee is so white. When someone sees me walk in the door, they assume that I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so they like, and sometimes, and I've definitely had people do the like, if I order a macchiato, I've had someone do the like, do you know that here that thing that's like a small drink? that, Uh that is not that big and it doesn't have caramel. And I'm like, I do know that. And it's not that it's not a fair question. It's not, it's not, it's not that it's not a fair question, but it's like, that's one small assumption of thousands of assumptions that get made about what I know about coffees. Mm -hmm. Or if I ask for a pour over, um, and people register obvious surprise. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I mean, the thing is if a thing is on your menu and someone orders it, you just make it. Cause it's on your menu and you shouldn't assume make the thing and then let them tell you that it wasn't the thing that they wanted. Yes. But like, if I'm coming in here asking you about your Kalita wave, chances are I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's like, it's just little, it's very small stuff like that. That lets me know that people are not accustomed to seeing people that look like me in the shop. Even if it's just that everyone looks at me and yeah. cause, and boy, does everyone look at me? Right. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not even just the people working behind the bar. It's the makeup of the shop, and it's like the customers, um, and so that's why I always, you know, I've I've had this conversation lots of times. I was in a position to hire people when I worked at Stumptown um, in New York City, uh, and it when I first started working there. I was um, definitely the first black person that worked in New York city. I don't know about (laughs) what it was like everywhere else, but I mean, I was the first one.
0: Wait, just, just to have it on record. Like what year was that?
2: That was in 2012.
0: Like that's, that's insane. That's insane that that was, that's like 2012. And we're, we were like the first person to claim that. Anyway, sorry. I just wanted to know.
2: No, and I'm not shooting on Stumptown because that's every coffee experience that I've had. Mm-hmm. And so almost every coffee experience. And if I wasn't the first black person, I might've been the first black woman. Yeah. And so it's like, that's not showing on that is representative of our entire industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly when I got hired and I don't actually think I, as a matter of fact, know that it wasn't that they didn't want to hire diverse candidates. I know it was that, the applications weren't there, Mm -hmm. but if the applications aren't there, there is sometimes a reason for that. Right. And so
1: it's that you don't.
2: Yeah. And it's, and frankly, right. There's always, when you do belong to a marginalized group, there will always be a first person to do something. Right. Mm -hmm. And that person, whatever the thing that they do, wherever they're like sort of breaking barriers, they love so much that Mm -hmm. they're going to pursue it no matter what. And they're going to do it where they feel like they can learn. Right. And so for me, going to apply at town was a no-brainer because they were killing it, making really good coffee. And when I went in there, honestly, a big part of it is when I went in there, the baristas were really nice to me. And actually, none of the stuff that usually happens to me in coffee shops as a, you know, as a black woman happened to me there. And I was like, this is a cool place. They're playing. <laughs> they're playing Beyonce. These baristas are really nice. Mm-hmm. I just had two of the best coffees I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. I want to work here. And at that time I'd been working in, in coffee for a year and actually a regular of mine suggested that I go because he was like, listen, I know you really love what you're doing. These guys are great. The coffee is good. Um, You should just check it out. And sometimes, you know, sometimes regulars don't know what they're talking about much as we love them. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while. It took me <laughs> a while to go. It took me a while to go. <laughs> but once I went, I went in there. I had a great experience. They were so nice to me. And I had really good coffees. And I was like, I got to work at this place. And I went home and I applied. And there was nothing that was going to stop me from applying because I wanted to be there. But I, it is also fair for people to not feel that intrepid, right? Mm-hmm. Because also, I grew up in a place where in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is basically all white. And I went to a boarding school there and the boarding school is purposefully very diverse. And so mm-hmm. in the, on the school grounds, I did not feel weird or ostracized, but it also meant from a pretty young age when I went, when we would engage in the public, go to the mall, do whatever, I was used to being one of not that many people who looked um, like me. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is a thing that I'm fine with. Right And so that's part of the reason why I've been able to work in coffee, because for other people who maybe grow up in neighborhoods that, for example, like, not to go all um, not to go all political, but for people who are grown up in neighborhoods that were redlined, right? So they might grow up in primarily black or primarily Hispanic neighborhoods, then it's going to be weird and uncomfortable mm-hmm. when you go into a space. That where no one looks like you. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, people already have ideas about the kind of person you are, the kind of things you like, um, and 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 frankly, have a little fear of you. That's going to be really mm-hmm. uncomfortable for that person. Yeah. And so I don't blame that person for not wanting to be the first person of color to, and I wasn't we had, there were two Latino women who worked there before us and we were all uh, frankly treated great. Like sometimes was a great place for me to work. And I worked under some really awesome and inspiring women. Um, but it was, I don't blame people for not feeling comfortable, like traversing that space. Right. And so like, I actually had, we actually had like a lot of, like a lot of black customers who would just were thrilled to see me there. And then when we and then when we opened our next store, it was honestly one of the the ver- most diverse coffee shop staffs that I've seen. Still is that way. Still is that way in New York even, and it's like New York is one of the most diverse places on the planet, mm-hmm. and coffee can't get it together here. Yeah, it's getting better, right? But they, but it means that it doesn't matter that it's not just because there may not be diversity where we're opening coffee shops because if that were the case in places like New York city, then the problem would solve itself, mm-hmm. but it's not solving itself. Mm-hmm. And so it is really like we do coffee shop owners have a responsibility, frankly, to be intentional in their hiring practices yeah, and also creating a space where people feel comfortable entering because a lot of times people will say, well, I don't know how to engage the, I don't know how to engage the neighborhood. Almost every time I hear that I'm, I'm like, Uh I want to call bullshit. I call bullshit Uh on that because you can Google how to engage a community and you will come up with something. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So every time I hear that, I'm like, you might tell me you don't feel comfortable. Tell me you don't feel that you have the right to like, that's a, that's a thing that's honest. That's yeah. true. But yeah. that you can't get the, but that you can't to say to me in the, in the, in 2017, in the year of Google, that you can't get any information on it. That's just not true. <laughs> so, um, and so I will hear people say that so often. And it's like, There are ways you can be intentional about engaging a community and they will, and very often, um, and actually, Ashley, you've said this, where people will say, well, it's about the cost. So I can't. um, So what can I do about that? I mean, there's nothing I can do about it. I just need to price the coffee a certain way and it just, and it's going to be expensive. Um, There are several issues with that. One um, is it's classist because they are making An assumption that a person can't afford a thing
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um just because they live in a certain place and it's like well actually like sometimes minorities are are uh sometimes people of color are denied housing because people don't want them living there because racism is still real so sometimes a person of relative means might still live in the neighborhood that they grew up in Mm -hmm. because that's or maybe they just live there because they want to feel comfortable But also, like, things cost more in the hood, which is a thing that people don't know. So, like, actually, things are, like, your coffee, they might not be accustomed to their coffee costing that much. But, like, things are, in New York, again, for example, things at bodegas are up-priced. They cost more in a bodega than they do in a Walmart or even just a grocery store. And so, actually, people who live in the neighborhoods where people are opening up coffee shops, are accustomed to spending money on things and even people who are tight fisted will, will buy themselves a luxury, even if it's just once every two weeks. Right. <laughs> and so it's not that. And, and honestly, in a lot of places, coffee is still kind of underpriced. It is underpriced. Yeah. And so it's not even like people are, it might be more expensive than they're used to, but it's not like the price you're charging is the price coffee cost. <laughs> To, mm-hmm. to make you a great margin. And so it's like, you're not going to get you're it's not that it's not how much it cost. It's not because a latte is. And also Starbucks has done, I mean, say what you want about them. They've done a lot of work for getting people, all sorts of people accustomed to paying um, more for coffee. And if you do go into Starbucks, you actually will see that the clientele is diverse. So don't tell me that, that, <laughs> that our our third wave shops are are not diverse because of the cost. I'm like, you, that is false. You are not creating a space that feels inclusive to people who live in that neighborhood. And a lot of that is about hiring. There's a coffee shop in my neighborhood um, that opened up like a year ago and the coffee's pretty good. Um, But what is more remarkable is that, so I live in Harlem, that coffee shop is representative of Harlem. Every kind of person that lives in my neighborhood goes to that coffee shop. And when I walk in that coffee shop, I never feel uncomfortable. And part of that is when they opened, when the the opening staff comprised of people who lived in the neighborhood. And from the day that place opened, it was diverse. It had a diverse clientele. And that is not every coffee shop in Harlem. They're not all that way. (laughs) And so it's like someone did something intentional and it yielded a result. And so if you don't have the information, there are ways for you to go after it, but to act like it's a thing that's out of our hands. That is, that doesn't cut it.
1: I'm sitting here just nodding my head for the last like 20 (laughs) minutes. Like, yes, yes, yes. Everything that you're saying is exactly so much on point. I'm so glad that you're (laughs) saying this. Yes.
0: Right. I think too, Jasper once told me and this inspired me so greatly as a manager um, is that her, one of her managers at ritual and no matter who sends a resume, no matter who leaves a resume, she will interview them at least for a couple of minutes. And I think small things like that, like considering like where are you putting your job descriptions, for example, like are you putting them on spread? Like, well, who's going to read that? Not to say that that's not right. like a good or bad thing, <laughs> but it's like but it's not in the neighborhood. It's no. like people right. like us who are reading it. So, if we're yeah. like buying into these systems of self-perpetuating stereotypes, then like we can't claim we're doing a good job.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That would literally be like someone saying, "Well, I put up this job on Craigslist in like the housing um, in the housing department, but no one applied. And it's like, yeah, no one's going to apply because people there are looking for housing. They're cool. not looking for a job. Uh-huh. And so if you're telling me that you want people in the neighborhood, in your neighborhood, looking for work and you want to hire from the neighborhood, but you're only posting online mm-hmm. to an insular, to insular stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just spread all of coffee, all of coffee media is insular. And there mm-hmm. is—I mean—it's hard to get around, right? We're a super specialized industry, mm-hmm. so yes, post that article to Sprudge. or post your um post your job posting to Spudge. Mm-hmm. But also, like, put it up in your cafe somewhere, yes. which I'm sure you do. But that also, is, like, yeah, enga- yeah, also engage because I there are a lot of people who I have seen gotten jobs working in coffee shops, um, just because they are hanging around and they love it and they're talking to you about it. Um, and you could be like, Hey, have you ever thought about working in coffee? Like there are so many, uh, and part of it is that, um, and I, I, uh, I have to thank, uh, my friend Teresa, friend and boss Teresa for this for always reminding me that coffee people are not always, um, they're not always the most extroverted, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which again, like I'm not dropping any truth bombs here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of it, sometimes we forget that we can just ask for a thing mm-hmm. or ask someone or ask someone if we have a question about a thing. Like, oh, you know what? Like, I, I have thought that this coffee shop isn't diverse. Do I want you to grab the first black barista you see? Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ask someone you have a good relationship with. Right. <laughs> like, don't be like, hey, barista, you started working in coffee two months ago what do you think about this? Right. <laughs> Don't do that. But even if all you do is go to a community center in your neighborhood, because that's what community centers are there for. Right. Mm-hmm. So like highlight the, go to the places that, that want to offer you those, those resources already that exist to offer you those resources and say, Hey, what do, how do I engage the community? What can I do to hire people in the community? Where would be a good place to, to post these things. And it is maybe for a group of people that are not extroverted. It it is asking a lot, but also it's not asking that much. Mm -hmm. You just have to do it. You're You're either actively working towards creating a space of inclusion and really wanting coffee to be a place for everyone, or you don't. If you love, to me, and I've always felt this way, if you really love specialty coffee, you want everyone to be drinking it. And if you want everyone to be drinking it, you got to engage the community that you're in. If you engage your entire community and everyone in the community is drinking it, you're going to make, you're going to sell more coffee and you're going to make more money. Like, mm-hmm. it's like these things all go together. They are not, um, so it's like you're not, if we want the world, certainly, we certainly wish, you know, we would like everyone to co- to drink coffee that is well sourced and that we think tastes really good. And the only way we do that is actually being, by being open to all kinds of people and thoughtfully and intentionally engaging all sorts of people. And it's just, we're just not doing that. And then we're kind of like putting up our hands and being like, well, we tried.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of us that, I mean, that are trying. And then there's a few of us who are really working really, really hard to do it. But there's, there's a huge portion of specialty coffee that doesn't necessarily want more diversity. Right. And I think, just even thinking
0: about the goal, like we want everybody to be drinking specialty coffee. I think this is something that I like definitely struggled with is that making a critique of something like this is not, it's not no one. We don't like critiques are meant to be taken with like a goal in mind. So for us to say stuff like, Hey, specialty coffee industry, like you need to look around and do more work. We're not trying to make people feel bad, but we're just saying a truth that, means that we achieve a goal that's worthwhile if we say that we want more people to be drinking specialty coffee and then we get defensive about well th- they're just not applicants there they're just not this this or that or i'm trying my best it's like no we can do more and it's and i don't want to call you out just to call you out like that doesn't feel good either we just want right. more people to be achieving our goal like you we all have the same goal is for more people to drink specialty coffee.
2: Oh, totally. And to, and to be really frank, like I am so, I am, um, when I get that, when I encounter that, that sort of, and I definitely know, like people have different feelings about, about this <laughs> and I have friends too, who approach this differently. But like when I, when I, um, when I find myself encountering that sort of like defensiveness, I think initially I would have wanted to be like, Oh, I know. I know you don't mean this. Now I'm like, I am not going to coddle you that I will not do because, because this is not about you. The thing is like, it's not, the critique is not really about, the, the critique is actually not to make anyone feel bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Because all of these, like all of these, all of this sort of systematic in- oppression that is ingrained in America is not about feelings. It is so much not about feelings and all about facts that it's not even funny. And so it's like, no, we're not like, I'm not assigning um, any negativity to you. I am stating things as they are. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. And you just don't have to have, you just don't have to make it about you individually because it's not, it's never about you individually in that there are a bunch of things that have, that happened. Um, that have culminated in this, in our situ- in our society being in the way that it is, especially coffee being the way that it is. It's like, it's like, we're all little specks of dust that, and that like all of this stuff has happened to and along with. And so it's mostly about be taking a frank appraisal of where we're at mm-hmm. and then moving forward. And so it's like, it's not that you can't, um, it's not that anyone can't have an emotional reaction to it. It's just that it's, it's misplaced Mm -hmm. because no, it's not a, there's no reason to take any of it as a personal attack. Right. And it's like, we're not saying we're literally just saying this is things as they are. And this is the way that they could be. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, we're going to have to um, be Frank to get there.
0: Right. I think something that like when I'm trying to like kind of put myself in someone else's shoes, maybe listening to this as a person who, maybe might respond negatively to some of these arguments. Something that I hear just a lot is um, like personal ownership. So like, I can hear people like already responding to this and being like, well, these women have like pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. So like, if they can do it, why can't anyone else? And I think that that's like a lot of rhetoric of what feminism has kind of looked like both in general and in coffee that there's a lot of like personal ownership and a lot of feelings about how feminism should be approached like we should be trying harder or mm-hmm. being sympathetic or somehow it's our our feelings that we have to suss out and right one of the greatest things i've ever heard was from you last night when we were on the phone was that if we if feminism was about like our feelings like we would have fixed it it'd be done <laughs> Like everyone would be equal. That. Like we'd be done. Be like, yay, but right. it's
2: not. Right. Like we've got that feeling it in the bag, right? Like mm-hmm. we've got we've had all the feelings about it. Um and if it were just about us being like, mm, if only we can manage our feelings better, everything will be fine. It's like, yeah, we would have already done that. Like again. And that's when I'll say, and especially as things get um as things get more more personal and you feel them sort of more acutely, it's like, does anyone think it's fun for us to talk about this stuff? Like, Mm -hmm. do people think it's fun for, for like a a woman to go to her boss and say like, Hey, like I'm getting paid less than my male coworker that I have the same amount of experience. Like, do you think any of us want to have that conversation? No, if we could never, uh, I see like, I I should never go to comment sections, but I always do. (laughs) Same. Um, (laughs) And I'll hear people be like, these feminists just want to complain. And I'm like, if I could never complain about this a day in my life, I would just be thrilled. Yeah. Like, I'm like, if I could take all the emotional energy that I have to expend into mm-hmm. dealing with sexism and racism, and if I could just take that portion of my brain and apply it to something else, mm-hmm. what could I even do? Mm-hmm. And I think about that all the time. I think about all the wasted energy. And brain space mm-hmm. that women and people of color use with dealing with their oppression,
1: yeah.
2: and having and and trying to be okay through it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what could people contribute if we could all be as unencumbered as white men? What would we do?